0: There's a bittersweet undertone to the candies that flood the average American household this time of year. Self-professed chocoholic Kate Hopkins traveled across Europe and America to learn about the many-layered candy industry and how the feel-good properties of your favorite confection go back a long way.
1: Well, it comes through alchemy and through the idea of the apothecary, where they used sugar as a means to make medicines.
0: Hi, I'm Rick Steves. In the spirit of Halloween, coming up, we'll hear from author Terence Zepke about the most haunted places in America. Her book research took her to an abandoned asylum in the dark hills of West Virginia, where she spent the night to see what's been scaring the locals.
2: And you are locked in there, and it's pitch dark. There's no electricity. There's quiet, and then there's unexplained noises. It's an experience that you'll remember. I promise you, Rick.
0: Plus, listeners relate their own spine-chilling moments at some of Europe's famous haunts. Tricks and treats you're sure to enjoy are just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. A lot of people travel with walls up. Bringing those walls down is what allows you to have those moments where you truly connect with new people and cultures. Rosetta Stone can help take down one of the biggest walls, the language barrier. Rosetta Stone is fun to use, you learn fast, and you can use it on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. For a special discount, go to rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. The innocence of candy at Halloween may taste a little bittersweet after today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves. We'll learn the important role sugar and confections have played in our history and how they still play a role in global trade. And we'll also see if we can settle that question of who makes the best chocolate in the world. That's in just a bit. But the treats of Halloween must also come with some tricks. We'll learn about some of the most scary places in our country that you can visit from a woman who's written a book called A Ghost Hunter's Guide to the Most Haunted Places in America. But let's start with your calls at 877-333-RICK as we hear about some of the most haunted places you've visited in Europe. Jack's on the phone in Sussex, New Jersey. Jack, thanks for your call.
3: Yeah, actually, uh, we were on a tour in England. One of the towns we stopped at was a little town called Stanton, and we went to a church called St. Michael's Church, and what I like to do is sometimes I take my, my compass with me, and what that does is it looks for electromagnetic fields, which are kind of like creepy areas. We checked out the graveyard in the church, and we found some strong magnetic fields in one corner of the church. So we went there, and it was like, you know, you just got this like real creepy feeling when you're in that area in the in the church. Really?
0: Yeah, it was so it it, pretty, it registered on your meter, and you could feel it in your gut.
3: Yes, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Are you like just a normal person, or do you have this happen to you all the time?
3: No, I, I'm just a, just a normal person. We uh, usually like to take our little compass around. I don't have a regular uh, magnetic meter. But I just take my compass, and what was nice, I was trying to show the other people on the tour about how to do it, too. So they really got into it, and everybody had a compass. They were starting to check out different areas. So
0: let me get this it. straight, Jack. you got it? just a regular compass, and you walk right. around, and it will act erratic when there's something uh, creepy going on.
3: Yes, exactly, because what it'll do, it'll point away from magnetic north and go to an area of high magnetic intensity.
0: And what might that be?
3: Usually it's an area of of paranormal uh, area where you may have a ghost or or some other type of paranormal activity.
0: I don't know if you realized this, uh, Jack, but you were at uh, a church dedicated to St. Michael, and you can conclude when you have a church dedicated to St. Michael that there was some pagan activity there before Christianity because when the Christians came in a thousand years ago or something, they would make a point to put St. Michael on that spot because he was the saint that would take care of pagan spirits.
3: Well, that's pretty weird. That's that's creepy right there.
0: (laughs) Anytime you find a Church of St. Michael, you can pretty much predict there was a Stonehenge kind of thing underneath if you dig down there.
3: Well, that would make sense then why I was getting high magnetic readings then. No, I'm
0: getting kind of creeped out right here. It's just that's that's so exciting. (laughs) You know, that reminds me once way back when I was a a minibus tour guide. I would run around Britain with eight people on a minibus. We'd never know where we're going to sleep tonight. And we checked into this one kind of a guest house on a hill sort of in a windy sort of netherland we checked in, and it was on a ley line. You know, the ley lines are the right. those sort of lines that connect all the Stonehenge-type sites and the St. Yep. Michael's and the pagan things, and they crisscross England. And some people think they brought the stones all the way to Stonehenge by taking advantage of the energy along these ley lines. Well, we checked into this guest house, and all of us went to our rooms, and it was so odd. Within, like, five minutes, we were all out in the hallway thinking, we can't spend the night here. This is too creepy. And like mm. a bunch of cartoon characters, we all grabbed our bags, ran back to our bus, loaded it up, and just drove out of there. We vacated. It was so wow. It was so creepy. So yeah, this part cool. of England is that way, and if you go to Glastonbury, that's sort of the capital of all this. Okay, yeah, we were, we were in that area. I found a new use for my compass now. I'm going to go to St. Michael's Church and see if it quivers in a creepy kind of way.
3: Yeah, what you want to do is, before you go into the churchyard... Check your your north reading so you make sure that you know which way your north reading is. So if the needle does move out of the north, you'll know. But uh, it was pretty cool. And sometimes it'll actually go around.
0: You wouldn't want to do this alone. You take your travel partner with you. (laughs) Yes,
3: that's for sure. That's for sure. Jack in New
0: Jersey, thanks a lot. And and stay safe. Okay. Okay, Thank you, Rick.
3: Okay. Bye-bye.
0: Jenny's on the line in Houston. Jenny, are you okay?
4: I am. How are you, Rick?
0: I'm getting kind of scared. But uh, do you have something you can share about scary things in your travels?
4: I do. My husband and I were in Paris a couple summers ago, and we went to visit the catacombs. And, you know, there's a tunnel that you walk through before you enter the actual room with the bones and the skulls in it. And right when we got to that entrance, there was a sign in French that warns you that you're about to enter the Empire of the Dead, and I kind of made a mocking, ooh, scary noise. Okay, let
0: me interrupt you here, because maybe our listeners don't quite know what the catacombs are, but way back in the French Revolution times and Napoleon times, they decided that graveyards were not hygienic, and they decreed that all of the graveyards around the churches would be emptied and turned into public spaces, and they would move all of the bones to the old quarry uh, tunnels under the streets of Paris. So they spent a whole generation, really, carting all these bones under the streets, and they're stacked neatly, and it is literally millions of skulls and tibia and fibia, and today, it's an attraction where tourists can go down this long, long, long stairway and then walk through these ancient quarry tunnels surrounded by millions of bones from unearthed cemeteries of all the churches in Paris. Now, with that in mind, you saw the arch announcing that what was happening, and you can carry on with your story.
4: Sure, that the arch was announcing that you were about to enter the Empire of the Dead. And so, like I said, I I said, ooh, scary, and my husband took a picture of me, and we crossed the threshold, and immediately my husband's flashlight popped and went completely dark, and my flashlight went out. And we fiddled with them for a couple of minutes, but couldn't get them to come back on. So we stepped back out into the tunnel, and I kind of said, Oh, I shouldn't have been irreverent. I'm so sorry. (laughs) My flashlight immediately came back on. And we remained very reverent throughout the rest of our tour in the catacombs. And like you said, the skulls and the tibias and fibias are right there. You could practically touch them. Oh, man. Um, but the scariest part to me was when we were working on our travel blog, we uploaded that picture. And to this day, when you visit our travel blog, that picture just shows up as, as a red X. You can't see it at all for some reason.
0: The moment, all of the spirits of all those bones of the permanent Parisians... Put to your camera in the dark.
4: <laughs> exactly. And it's very cool and crisp down there from oh, the city. You
0: know, you've heard of Plaster of Paris. They have all yes. this uh, white chalky stuff because that's what they were uh, mining, apparently, or quarrying. And when I go into the catacombs for the rest of the day, my feet are caked in this white stuff. And
4: That's right. It's all over your shoes.
0: And you, you remind yourself you've entered and survived the empire of <laughs> the <laughs> dead. That reminds me, I was in... Romania once, visiting friends, and this was during the Soviet era, and uh, I had to shuttle around every night to a different home. And in Romania, they have a tradition of unearthing the graves of their dead grandparents after a couple of generations, and they literally put the skull that's been rotted clean, you know, on their mantle. So you're in somebody's living room, and right next to the TV and and over by the magazines, on the mantle, you've got Grandpa's skull (laughs) sitting on the mantle. And I thought, that is a unique, a unique tradition you find only in Romania.
4: Wow, that is incredible.
0: Hey, well, when people go to Paris, would you recommend that they enter the Empire of the Dead?
4: Absolutely. It's just really fascinating.
0: And with one caveat, respect the dead.
4: Absolutely.
0: All right, Jenny in Houston, thanks for your scary call.
4: Thanks, Rick. Great to talk to you. Take
0: care. Stay safe. Okay, you too. Our phone number is 877-333-7425 is on the phone in Minneapolis. Jerry, thanks for your call.
5: Well, my wife and I are relatively new travelers, but uh, we were in Paris two years ago and went to the catacombs. Both of us are claustrophobic to start with. <laughs> so,
0: so you it, were just...
5: It probably wasn't the best place in the world to go.
0: Now, these were the same catacombs Jenny was just talking about, right?
5: Rue Denfer, I believe. It That's right, yeah. That's right, yeah we found it absolutely amazing pretty much experienced the same thing just it was amazing to see the mortality that's been stacked artistically throughout the catacombs
0: and it's interesting to note that all the dead from each church is collected together and there's a thoughtful little plaque that says these are the remains of the parishioners of this or that church from this or that arrondissement
5: it is and the stories that i heard at least were that the priests brought all the remains down in the middle of the night in black carts yeah so the, the Parisians did not see this actually happening.
0: You know, ultimately it cleaned up the city and uh, they have nice public spaces around the churches now and as we travel all over Europe we've got to remember the churchyards used to be cluttered with uh, tombstones because everybody wanted to be close to the church in their death to wait the uh, second coming or the day of uh, salvation or whatever. It was not hygienic and it was congesting things in the age of uh, revolutionary time when people were being so logical and less emotional and people were even questioning whether religion made sense at all, uh, Napoleon said, we've just got to unearth all these stupid graveyards and get them outside of town or, or move them out. And that really made a big change on what we see in Europe today.
5: My wife and I, basically, our scary part was trying to get out with all these crystallized oh, yeah. skulls and everything. But
0: now, now, you had an experience in the Père Lachaise Cemetery also?
5: Well, to me, that cemetery is just amazing. But I saw the most eerie, I guess it's a mausoleum, but they're all eerie there i mean it's, it's such beautiful artwork, but there's one it's uh
0: the family Rupale
5: Rupale, yes, where it's just a normal sized mausoleum, but we were there close to sunset. there's like a granite or marble figure in mourning mm. that has its hand up on the mausoleum it's a full size figure and it's just totally draped in um what would look like mourning rags and it's uh
0: but it's out of stone
5: it's out of stone yeah. and there's there's no face.
0: You know, that's that's a whole art style that I've noticed in cemeteries around Europe. It's sort of late 1800s, I think, and it's this Belle Epic or Art Nouveau something or I don't know what, but it's very super emotional. The National Cemetery in Milano is really great that way. And, of course, in Paris, the ultimate cemetery is the one you're talking about, Père Lachaise. And we've even got a guided tour of that cemetery in our book that's that's very popular because you go there and you can see, you know, Jim Morrison and Frederick Chopin and and uh, lots of Oscar famous Wilde. Pre- Oscar Wilde. He's the one that's covered with uh, lipstick, isn't
5: he? Uh, yes, I, I myself didn't kiss it. My wife thought about it, but she thought <laughs> it wasn't too hygienic, you know. But you but, can
0: wander around forever in that place, and it can be spooky.
5: But especially when you get up into more of the um, the World War II survivors, the Holocaust survivors. And up into oh, and the there's Jewish powerful stuff
0: from the, the Holocaust and World War II, a lot of heroics and a lot of memorials there. Jerry, thanks for your call, Jerry, and stay safe this scary time of year, okay?
5: Well, it's actually Halloween is my birthday, so it's kind oh. of a fun one, too. Uh. <laughs> then you'll be okay. <laughs> That's a good one. Okay, okay,
0: happy travels. You can share your own encounters with unexplained phenomena around the world in the radio message board on our website at ricksteves.com. If staying at a haunted hotel sounds like fun to you, our next guest has a few suggestions on where you can find the scariest places in America, from literally underground Portland to a ghost-filled saloon in the Old Wild West and even a former asylum in the wilds of West Virginia where you can spend the night if you dare there's something in the air this Halloween. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone believes that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Now available as a smartphone and tablet app. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. You don't have to believe in ghosts to realize that certain places in our national history are haunted with legends and spirits of long ago. Terence Zepke grew up in South Carolina, knowing the tales of colonial-era pirates, Civil War legends, the impact of low-country voodoo, and the famous residents of weathered cemeteries, places you'd probably best not visit at night. She's written books on coastal South Carolina, best ghost tales of South Carolina, pirates of the Carolinas, and her latest book investigates saloons and cemeteries, former sanatoriums and penitentiaries across America, where rumors of strange phenomena seem to have some bearing. It's called A Ghost Hunter's Guide to the Most Haunted Places in America. Terrence, thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me, Rick.
0: Tell us, why are you so interested in ghosts?
2: Uh, I just find it absolutely fascinating. These places, particularly because of the history of them, that really is a big draw to me. Places, that goes beyond urban legend, where they actually have gone in and done paranormal investigations. Um, They've been well-documented, and they have all kinds of hauntings going on. That's just got to be appealing for anyone, right?
0: Now, that is interesting, (laughs) because I kind of discount ghost stories because they don't have that historical basis. But what you're saying is, You can be a ghost hunter and still be a historian, and you're talking about actual, some sort of excuse historically or evidence that there's paranormal stuff going on here. What kind of physical evidence can you find?
2: Well, the point of doing these investigations is that they go in with all this equipment. There's EVPs, there's EMFs, there's um, infrared cameras and all kinds of things. What are
0: EVPs and EMFs?
2: They're ghost-detecting equipment. Come Rick, on. you got to come with me sometime. <laughs> How do you detect
0: the goes? What I mean is, it does it well, wiggle when it gets do, close to something.
2: For instance, the EVPs, what that detects is electronic voice phenomena, and so you can be in a room and not hear something that this machine will pick up, and so later when they're playing it back, you can actually hear sort of disembodied voices and things that are happening all around you you were not aware of, and the same holds true with the infrared cameras and the EMF detectors and all that, so they're trying to approach it from a scientific viewpoint. So,
0: uh, you know, sound is vibrations in the air, so there are actually physical vibrations in the air.
2: Yeah, so when you're getting these meter readings that are showing these, you know, things, and you know, you have to say, okay, this is something beyond our realm of easy or scientific explanation, so whether you believe in ghosts or not, you have to say, there's something going on here, you know, <laughs> and that's what I like.
0: When I think of ghosts, you know, I think of kind of like Casper, right? Are there different kinds of ghosts, angels, you know, uh, evil ghosts, friendly ghosts?
2: Well, some of these places are haunted by some rather malevolent um, entities, if you will. Um, and it really depends on their history. That's why you really have to go in and do your research and understand the backstory. For instance, in the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, which I discuss in the book, These people were mental patients. This was an institution, and this was in place before we knew a lot about mental health and before we had a lot of regulations. So these people were subjected to experimental procedures. Rick, we're talking like lobotomies, (laughs) using primitive tools, electroshock, hydrotherapy. So these are sort of tortured souls, so they don't necessarily, you know, feel like being friendly. <laughs> and,
0: I, and, and by the way, this is one of the fascinating chapters in your book, the, the trans allegheny Lunatic Asylum from the town of Weston in West Virginia. And I understand if a if a person is, is put into a lunatic asylum back in the 19th century, if they had a child, the child would be sent to the the lunatic asylum with the parent. Now that is a tortured soul to have to live in there if you are a person who is just uh, young and and surrounded by all this horror. Tell us a story about the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum.
2: Okay, well, first I have to set the scene for you. This is on a huge piece of property in a tiny town in a remote area of West Virginia. So first thing when you get there, it's a very remote area. So it's, you know, you feel like you've left civilization behind.
0: And from the photos, it just looks creepy.
2: It is an absolutely fabulous building. It's a 250,000 square foot facility, and it's the largest hand-cut stone masonry building in North America. And it's actually second largest in the world after the Kremlin. So it's very imposing, very impressive when you pull up to it. And of course, it had to be self-sufficient. It had to maintain itself and everything. So back in the day, it was 666 acres. It had a farm um, it had a cemetery. it had all the you know it had facilities there where the doctors and nurses lived. They couldn't commute that this wasn't near anything. so everybody was there, and everything was taken care of there and Of course, they did surgery and procedures there. It was actually a military post during the Civil War. it was commandeered by the union, and so one of the areas that's most haunted is supposedly by some of the civil war soldiers and then, of course, some of the patients that were there that you mentioned there were tortured souls, and some of them might be lingering. And then some of the patients actually killed other patients. Um, Some commit suicide.
0: This is a perfect setup for something haunted and and spooky. So, okay, I'm all all alone in the halls of this lunatic asylum. What would I feel? What's going on?
2: I can tell you what I felt. I've never felt anywhere else I've ever investigated. Um, It's a four-story building, and I went first during the day, and you can do a daytime tour, a historical tour, and you can do a short tour or you can do the whole long tour. we will take you through the whole place. So, of course, that's what we did so that we could get a good idea of everything before we're stumbling around in the dark later that evening. And I tell you, even during broad daylight, that place you just feel things all around you. There's just an unseen presence.
0: I understand from your book you can actually spend the night. Mm -hmm. I can picture a single bed in a cell. I'm laying there. What am I going to feel? It's dark. I don't know, but I'm getting scared just dreaming about this thing.
2: It's really, you know, your mind plays games on you, too, when you go and do these investigations. And and then, of course, it is haunted. And you are locked in there, and it's pitch dark. There's no electricity. You've got flashlights only. And there's cold spots in there. You know, there's, there's quiet, and then there's unexplained noises. But because this place is so remote, there's no lights from streetlights. There's no honking of car horns. There's no neon signs from McDonald's. I mean, you're out there just on your own, hmm. and it's an experience that you'll remember. I promise you, Rick. <laughs>
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and uh, we're getting spooked with a discussion with Terrence Zepke, and her book's called A Ghost Hunter's Guide to the Most Haunted Places in America. Terrence, let's go across the United States all the way to Portland, Oregon, and you write about a, a fascinating thing about Shanghai Tunnels. Tell us about what happened there.
2: Well, Rick, you had to be really careful what tavern you staggered into um, in that day because there were strategically placed trap doors in certain establishments. And what they would do is they pick certain people, you know, that were ripe for the plucking there, and they would lure them over to these trap doors where someone was waiting below. And this is in the middle of a crowd at tavern, you know, and they just took you over and they just, you know, dropped the trap door and you were gone into these tunnels. And it was either because you were drunk or you had been drugged. But either way, that's how they did it. And they kept you there until they took you from the tunnels down to the waiting ships. And part of the reason this was such a a prevalent thing was this was during the Gold Rush era. And all the men had gone out west to strike their fortune, and they didn't have enough men for the ships. So they Shanghai'd them.
0: Get them drunk and sign them up onto a ship, and uh, they'd wake up at sea, and uh, they'd be heading off to Shanghai as a hand on the ship.
2: Right, absolutely.
0: And this is a historic uh, thing? This actually happened? Oh, yeah. You can actually tour that in Portland, the Shanghai Tunnels?
2: Yeah, you can go in. There's a group that will take you in, you know, under the restaurant, and they'll take you into the tunnel, and they'll tell you the history, and uh, they'll tell you a lot. The good thing about taking these tours, rather than just going on your own, is that you get a lot of information that you wouldn't have otherwise. Like, they're going to tell you about specific things that have happened to people down in the tunnels. Like, one of the things was apparently they took their shoes from them when they shanghaied them and they spread broken glass and it still can be seen in the tunnels today and that was so they couldn't, if they came to, they couldn't escape.
0: So the the broken glass from, what, a hundred years ago is still littering these tunnels?
2: And shoes. They've still got some of the shoes that they, they really? took off the men too. Yeah.
0: You also write about Tombstone, Arizona, which any, any kid that enjoyed the old westerns remembers was the site of the shootout at the O.K. Corral with the Wyatt Earp, and so on, and lots went on in Tombstone. How did that town become so haunted? And and, and tell us a little bit about the background of Tombstone.
2: Well, you know, it was considered to be one of the wildest, wickedest places in America at that time, because this is where all the men came out, you know, to seek their fortune and all, and there wasn't any law. So there was cowboys, you know, and they they just ran wild, and they ended up, you know, a lot of them in places like Tombstone, and the saloons also had brothels and gambling and everything, and one of them is there in Tombstone. It's called the Birdcage Theater, and you can still go in it today. And you should if you go to Tombstone. No trip is complete without it because there are 140 bullet holes in the walls of this saloon. There was at least 26 documented deaths that occurred here. And just just fascinating history that you just, you know, you couldn't make it up. (laughs) There was a poker game that went on down below 24-7 from the time the the place opened until it closed. It was a $1,000 buy-in and the game never stopped. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <Whoa>.
2: <laughs> yeah. So there was a lot of disputes, of course, over the prostitutes, over the gambling, just drunken men getting rowdy, blowing off steam, just a lot of things like that. And sometimes it went too far. And, and so there were some deaths.
0: Tell us about the hauntedness of that. Are there the ghosts of murdered prostitutes? or, or...
2: There is one ghost, a prostitute one night named Gold Dollar. Uh, have a regular customer and she came in and saw uh, another prostitute flirting with him and she got so mad she stabbed and killed this other prostitute named Marguerite. So supposedly the spirit of Marguerite haunts the Birdcage Theater to this day. The biggest thing probably that they say happens is, you know, at night there's no activity there. It's closed Mm. and you can still hear though. People swear that they've come by there and they thought something was, they were having a special event or something because there is the sounds of a saloon in progress. You know, drinks, uh, uh, glasses (laughs) clinking, you know, laughter, you know, loud voices and all that. And yet there's nothing inside when someone goes in to investigate. So
0: When I hear you talking about this, Terrence, I think of my work as a guidebook writer. I'll I'll go to a a hotel and I'll I'll check and see if the bed's good and if it's quiet at night and, uh, you know, if the shower works. And I take my notes. And I can imagine you going there with your work and and you go back to the place after hours and you just listen for rustling in the stairway. How do you research this? Do you actually go there and test for paranormal sort of uh, sensations?
2: Oh, yeah. Um, I do my homework first to make sure that the legitimate stories because a lot of stuff gets, you know, urban legend out there and a lot of things. The one thing I, I was sure about in this book is that there's been recent activity. Because some of these, you know, places that they talk about being haunted, nobody can tell you the last time there was activity. Oh yeah, you um, you don't want to go to a
0: dormant haunted place. You want a place that's got some haunted action, right now. Okay, well, let's talk about the Queen Mary because I think the Queen Mary is a fascinating ship. It has a great history from shipping troops back and forth in World War II. It did what a thousand voyages since her first maiden voyage in 1936 across the Atlantic, and now it is permanently moored in Long Beach in California. And uh, you went there, and you found it to be quite haunted, and you report on that in your book.
2: Yeah. It was commandeered during the war by the Navy, so there's reports that there are sailors that have been seen um, in certain areas of the ship, and also some passengers that have died there over the years also uh, haunt the place.
0: Now, this is a big ship, isn't it? I understand it's bigger than the Titanic.
2: It's a very big ship, yes, and they've had psychics come in to do investigations, as well as paranormal groups, of course, and the, there's a dispute just how many ghosts are on board. One psychic puts it as low as 150, and another psychic puts it as high as 600 ghosts aboard this ship. So whatever the actual count is, needless to say, it's pretty haunted.
0: <laughs> Maybe this is where ghosts go on a cruise for vacation. I mean, hundreds <laughs> of ghosts like gathering about- on the Queen Mary. <laughs>
2: The thing I like about the Queen Mary is there's so many different ways that you can explore this as a tourist. You can just choose to go on board and take a tour. You can go on board and actually eat in one of the restaurants, uh, do some shopping, or you can stay. It's a hotel now, so you can actually spend the night if you dare.
0: So many of these places you can actually sleep in. As a traveler, as a tourist, would you pay more or would you pay less to, to sleep in a place that was haunted?
2: Oh, absolutely. Pay more. It's really interesting. When I started, (laughs) when I started writing ghost books several years ago, places were really reluctant to tell you because they thought it was bad for business. So people were like, please don't put this in the book or you're not allowed to talk to our employees or we don't, we don't want people to know this. Now everybody wants to, you know, they say, Oh, hey, come here, check us out, you know, write us up, you know, tell about our ghost. And so it's kind of funny how it's changed as people have gotten less put off by a place being haunted and actually hoping to have uh, an experience during the night, you know.
0: (laughs) I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Terrence Zepke, and her book is A Ghost Hunter's Guide to the Most Haunted Places in America. You wrote in your book about that Queen Mary, Terrence, that uh, ghost tours are not recommended for those under 15. Is it really that scary?
2: Well, um... You know, they, they might share some information that you might not want a small child to hear, you know, because, you know, how things stick with children. Gruesome um, that, Yeah, they don't want them to have nightmares or something. And, and if there is a haunted experience, you know, if something happens to you while you're on the ship, you know, then you might not want a small child. Because there are some of these places, um, one of them is Bobby Mackey's Music World, and can tell you there, that they actually have a sign out front. That tells people enter at your own risk because they've been sued um, oh. by people who have been pushed to the ground or shoved or tugged or whatever and all. So I guess that, you know, certain places, you know, think twice before you bring a small child to some, you know, and some of these are okay.
0: But it's Halloween. It's Halloween. Okay, now, yeah. so we're, we're in the Halloween mood. Let's close out this little discussion with your recommendation for mm, the creepiest place in the United States that you could take your children for Halloween.
2: Oh, the creepiest place, Um, well, for adults I would recommend Bobby Mackey's Music World. It is a fabulous experience because of its gruesome history. Where is that? That is in Kentucky, Wilder, Kentucky. Okay. It's all honky-tonk.
0: What's so scary or haunted about it? What's so good about it?
2: Well, it's got a a lot of, of benevolent spirits in there, and that's why I said people have actually been pushed, shoved, knocked to the ground and all that. There was a woman, a young woman that was beheaded here. There was another young woman who killed herself. Um, It was mob-owned for a while, and they said that they did a lot of their hits here, and they moved the bodies so it wouldn't be connected with the place, but they did do a lot of their Hmm. hits here. And there was a cult that actually came here and used the facility to do satanic rituals. So it's got a really dark history there, and so there's several ghosts in there that are apparently not happy ghosts.
0: Okay, Bob Mackey's Music World in Kentucky. Okay, and for kids, that was good without kids.
2: Yeah, I think that would be better without kids. A great place to take kids would be the Pirates' House in Savannah, Georgia. It's got pirates, it's got history, it's got ghosts, it's got got everything that a kid would, would be interested in.
0: Hey, Terrence, if you read your book, A Ghost Hunter's Guide to the Most Haunted Places in America... Are you more or less likely to have a paranormal experience?
2: I don't know if reading the book would make you more inclined to it. It might open you up to make you more aware because a lot of people have the erroneous impression that a paranormal experience is that you're just going to see a ghost pop up in front of you. And that's pretty much the least common. What's going to happen is you might notice. A cold spot, a cold sensation, a breath on the back of your neck, uh, something tugging on your shirt, or uh, just a creepy feeling, all kinds of things like that that might make you more aware that these are tied into a paranormal experience rather Mm. than just having Casper jump out at you.
0: (laughs) Now, as one of the most schooled experts on paranormal experiences in the United States, how are you going to celebrate Halloween this year?
2: (laughs) I don't get much chance to celebrate Halloween uh anymore because I'm usually pretty tied up doing ghost events. So that's sort of my celebration is talking about ghost all month. <laughs> and I tell people there are ghosts in January too, but everybody wants you in October. So Oh,
0: that's true. You probably have a huge spike in demand for your work.
2: I actually am leaving tomorrow to go to Colorado to check out the Stanley Hotel. That's where the shining was filmed with Jack Nicholson. Oh, yeah. So that's sort of my Halloween thing this year.
0: Terrence Zepke, author of A Ghost Hunter's Guide to the Most Haunted Places in America. Thank you for making my Halloween a little creepier.
2: Thanks for having me, Rick. Bah! <laughs> <laughs> well, when the trumpet
6: sounds a call. When the
0: I wonder what kind of chocolate they might put on your pillow at night in a haunted hotel. Going now from tricks to treats, up next, Kate Hopkins uncovers the bittersweet history of candy and searches the world for the best chocolate and confections that you can enjoy guilt-free. We're at 877-333-7425. It's travel. Boom! With Rick Steves. There's a story behind every chocolate bar, licorice stick, peppermint patty, and even the Necco wafers you might find in your trick-or-treat bag. Kate Hopkins traveled far and wide to get the backstory on the candies we enjoy today and to get a close-up look at the places that celebrate the sugary products that crowd supermarket shelves. Her book about these discoveries is called Sweet Tooth. Kate first joined us a few years ago to talk about the art of making whiskey. She wrote a book about it called 99 Grams of Whiskey. You can hear that interview again, if you like, in our radio archives. She also writes a popular food blog at accidentalhedonist.com.
1: Kate, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Kate, how does candy and its allure vary from culture to culture?
1: I think it varies primarily through how it's perceived by each resident, each citizen. For example, in Italy, it's perceived as just another cultural staple. While here in the United States, it's seen as a very adolescent product. And when it's promoted, it's promoted in such a way that it ascribes the feelings of Willy Wonka. So That's
0: interesting because I love this line in your, in your book. You wrote, being an adult is having the means to buy all the candy you want, but no longer wanting to.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a lot that came up to just describe just the frustration of growing up, essentially.
0: Do you still like candy? Love candy. Did you eat a lot of candy while writing this book? Way too much. Now, when you're talking about in Italy, it's not just a Willy Wonka thing. It's a mature part of the culture. We're going to enjoy some quality candy.
1: Oh, if you go into any of the cafes throughout Italy, they most of them will have a huge selection of artisan-made confectionery. That's interesting. They've got these
0: goofy little chocolate eggs all over europe for the kids which are just the cheap little kinder stuff kinder stuff and then they've got the expensive really quality candy for people who appreciate quality stuff it's like you know when you travel through europe i learned a long time ago just buy the kids a a popsicle and we'll get the fine gelato and the kids are just happy with the with the popsicle and the parents can really appreciate the quality that goes into some of this uh, sweetness
1: that's correct you can see that kind of culture aspect throughout italy
0: Now, your book is pretty Eurocentric. Is that because candy is a bigger thing in Europe, or or why?
1: Well, the history of confectionery actually comes through Europe, through the spice trade, through the Muslim influence of the Iberian Peninsula and Sicily. So I wanted to focus, when I talked about the history, on that aspect.
0: On, on what aspect exactly?
1: Uh, the historical aspect, how it grew, how we ended up with lemon heads and Hershey's in our backyard. What's well, the path? So
0: the fact that, you know, European culture dominated the world right. as the world entered into the modern age, mm-hmm. that meant that Europe also led the charge culturally into appreciation of fine confectionery?
1: That's absolutely right.
0: How does candy, an, an approach, and appreciation to candy change between the rich world and the poor world?
1: It's a luxury for us. As a commodity, we tend to take advantage of the luxury aspect of it, even though we may not realize it because we're spending maybe $1 or $2. In the third world, it's seen much differently, and it's often used as a means of almost bribery in some ways. You could use it as its own set of currency in certain countries.
0: I think of kids in the in the tropics just chewing on a piece of sugar cane.
1: Oh, absolutely Correct.
0: Whereas it's, here, kids aren't going to chew on a piece of sugar cane. They're going to get 50 cents from their parents and go down to the store. Right. What is the practical history? I mean, salt has a history in preserving meat. Is there a, a practical reason that candy comes into our culture, or is it simply just a nice little way to, to satisfy our sweet tooth?
1: Well, it comes through alchemy and through the idea of the apothecary, where they used sugar to, as a means to make medicines.
0: To sweeten medicine so they're more palatable?
1: Absolutely correct. Okay. So they would take that, and also at the time, we had humorism as the primary means of how to determine whether a person was ill or not ill, and bodies being out of balance and all that. And they would use sugar as a means to put bodies back in balance.
0: Was that just wives' tales and stuff, or was there anything to that? There was absolutely nothing to it. Nothing to it. I gather in your book they used uh, sugar to preserve fruits.
1: Preserve fruits, uh, to sweeten syrups. They used it for anything they could.
0: Kate, describe some great candy moments you've had in Faraway Lands.
1: That's a good question. Uh, my favorite was when we were in Walking the Back Streets of Genoa. We accidentally came across one of the premier confectionery houses purely by accident. We were walking around through the old town and trying to find candies that were new and unique and we didn't weren't aware of. And my friend leaned against the wall and go, oh, I give up on this. And right behind us was one of the premier confectionery houses in Europe. Which was? Pietro Fus Stefano. that has this magnificent history of the Baroque age and the classical age. And we walked in, and it's, everything is handmade. And you had sugared flowers, and you had sugared chestnuts and confetti, and you'd have all these just treats that were clearly handmade. It seems
0: like half of your book is Italy. Is Italy really important for candy more than Spain or Greece or Norway?
1: I think so. I, I think that because of, well, one, the spice trade primarily goes through Venice during that time, so they okay. had that aspect of it. You also have the Muslim influence on Sicily, and then you have the translations of the Muslim text into Latin at Siena. So all of this is taking place over a course of centuries, and it helps... Evolve the confectionery of of the uh, apothecary into something else.
0: Okay, so this leap from medieval drugstores to recreational candy. Absolutely. Happened in Italy. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're talking with Kate Hopkins. Her book is Sweet Tooth, The Bittersweet History of Candy. The Bittersweet History of Candy. That's relating to the ethics of candy, and you mentioned it was tougher to write this book than to write your book about whiskey because It really comes with some hard ethical issues. Talk about that for a bit, please.
1: Well, there are two primary aspects to that. One's the historical and one's the current problems that are surrounding confectionery. Sugar plays a primary role, of course, in the the history of candy. And with the sugar history comes the slave trade, comes the expansion of Spain and Portugal into certain regions of the world, and they're trying to establish these sugar plantations. And because they couldn't get... The labor force they wanted, they tie in with the pope, and the pope says you can use non-Christian people as slaves, and that's essentially how the slave trade evolved.
0: Okay, so the early candy industry was subsidized by free slave labor. Correct. And that's an ugly aspect of candy. And then you've got 20th century or 21st century corporate greed. Uh, The major candy houses, Cadbury's, Hershey's, Mars, they wouldn't even talk to you when you're working on this book.
1: It's not necessarily because of the questions I was asking. They were just inaccessible because they have this image that they're trying to convey to the public. But behind all this is if you go to the cocoa plantations of the Ivory Coast in Ghana, you have the worst form of child labor going on. Everything from non-payment of work to literal child slavery. Carol Orr, I believe her name, wrote a fantastic book upon this that even documents over 800,000 instances of episodes such as these.
0: So if you are a very conscientious consumer and you believe you can shape the world by what you buy and what you consume, how would that relate if you're also uh, somebody who just loves candy? How can you be a conscientious consumer of candy? Or does it matter?
1: It does matter. And e- even the Hershey's and the Cadbury's and, and the Nestle's of the world are trying to address the issue in some manner or another. The primary aspect, though, is know where the cocoa comes from and understand how the people are being paid. Fair trade right now is a very popular way of accomplishing that, and certain companies have been certified to fair trade. If a company acknowledges the problem, you can assure that at least they're trying to address it in some manner.
0: So Cadbury's, Hershey's, Mars, are some of them champions and others villains, or or what's your take on these big corporations?
1: I think they'd rather have self-regulation than government oversight, and because of that... They're trying to balance doing the right thing versus making sure that the stockholder still has an increase in the stock at the end of the year.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about candy, sweet tooth. That's the book, The Bittersweet History of Candy. Have some cultures used sweets as an aphrodisiac?
1: Are we do to this day. Valentine's Day is a prime example of that.
0: That's right. Didn't quite think of it in terms of that, but it does uh, do the trick.
1: A simple box of chocolate goes a long way for many a people.
0: And is this something unique to our culture, or is a box of chocolate a way to win, win the heart of your lover in many cultures?
1: It goes beyond our culture. I think that's a, a fair fact. But it manifests itself in different ways. Back when the cocoa plant was discovered, they could use it to buy their wives and things along that line. So we have the whole gamut of how chocolate is influenced. Uh, relationships, whether it's a simple aphrodisiac or using it as a monetary weight. Well,
0: let's talk about chocolates because that is really the big deal for a lot of travelers. You go to Europe and people debate, what are the best chocolate uh, cultures? Where do you find the best chocolate in Europe?
1: First place is Belgium. They take care of it, they understand it, and they do things their way. And you have the houses of Newhouse and Godiva come from there, and there's just have this aspect that's...
0: Now, Godiva's going to cost about double per gram what Leonidas costs. Can you taste a difference?
1: I I believe you can't. I believe that most people, uh, the, the nuances are difficult to get because at. Because
0: the Belgians I know, they'll go to Leonidas when they're going to get some some bulk chocolate. It's half the price of the high-end Godiva. And
1: yeah. In, in, it's, and it's
0: really debatable whether you can taste a difference.
1: You know, and it's debatable even when, like the United Kingdom has a very poor reputation when it comes to the quality of their chocolate. But many people love Cadbury. Right. And they they use different sorts of ingredients. They use vegetable oil instead of cocoa butter. And, and it most people can't make that distinction between those types of chocolate.
0: In your travels, Kate, there's a lot of chocolate factories that open up for tourists and chocolate museums and so on. A lot of them seem like kitschy little tourist traps, and others are honest-to-goodness cultural experiences. What's your favorite chocolate tour?
1: In Cologne, Germany... There is a museum right off the Rhine that deals with the history of chocolate. It's run by the folks who own the Lint, the little truffle balls that you can get at some bookstores.
0: L-A-N-D-T. Correct. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: But they don't promote their product. They don't beat you over the head with a marketing aspect. They try to teach you about cocoa and its history and its relevance. You go to some places in, in here in the United States and in England, they're basically amusement parks. They're basically 15-minute, 20-minute commercials.
0: Right, nice videos and a little sample at the end. I remember 20 years ago you could tour the the chocolate factories in Switzerland, and it was great, but most of them have, for, I think, hygienic reasons or safety reasons or, or liability reasons, stopped letting people actually go through the factory. You can visit the factory, but it's pretty much limited to a showroom, a video, and a sampling.
1: That's correct. Through insurance problems and liability issues, they found it just cheaper not to allow certain people on the premises.
0: By the way, I agree that the uh, chocolate museum tour in Cologne, K-O-L-N, on the Rhine River in Germany is the best chocolate experience I have had. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Gail's on the phone in Harwood Heights, Illinois. Gail, thanks for your call. Hi. Well, I
3: live in Chicago and this is like the candy making capital of the world we have great candy here i've had different candies in some of our travels we got some chocolates in uh, belgium which were really good but i think the most impressive was the lint chocolate factory tour we took when we were in cologne germany and luckily i can get the lint chocolate here
0: we were both agreeing with that, the, the chocolate factory, right on the river there in Cologne, right?
3: Yes, it was wonderful. The tour was just fantastic.
0: Did you have a truffle there, and, and how do you define a truffle?
3: A uh, truffle seems to be a round chocolate candy with a soft filling, a soft chocolate filling. They're just so, so good.
0: And, and then there's the truffle and there's pralines. Kate, how would you distinguish between... We see the word pralines and we, we see the word truffles, and some people might confuse truffles with the expensive little underground mushrooms in Italy and France and so on. What is a truffle, in your mind, for chocolate lovers, and what's a praline?
1: Uh, truffle is a very, as Gail was saying, it's it's a soft center. It's more cocoa in its nature. Or A praline can have everything from uh, nuts to a, a nougat to even... Uh, liqueurs of some sort. It's sort of a broader term.
0: All right. Gail, thanks for your call.
6: Okay. Bye-bye.
0: And Bill's on the phone in Tonawanda, New York.
6: Hello, Kate. One quick question. I have a sweet tooth, and I was just simply wondering, whatever it takes to be a food writer for chocolate and candy, I I would love to know what you have to do to do that because I would quit my job in a heartbeat.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Bill. I appreciate that. it's, It's a fun job. It was a fun experience. Absolutely
6: yeah uh, my question relates to chocolate we've been overseas twice in the last two years once in italy and once in paris and the chocolate in both countries has been absolutely terrific but we always thought that belgian chocolate maybe based on its reputation but we were always under the impression that belgian chocolate was always the best and i was just simply wondering what your thoughts were on, on the matter as far as what you would consider to be the the best chocolate And as far as do they use different ingredients, which is probably somewhat of a guarded secret, but then again, I really don't know. Is it the process of making it and the overall preparation, and the taste, or is it boiled down to personal preference?
1: Oh, that's such a great question. Uh, You know, personal preference absolutely pays a part of it, but it's not the only variable involved. And we should state that there are bad Belgian chocolates out there. Not every chocolate you get when you go to Brussels or Bruges is going to be fantastic. But more to your question, what I have found through my travels is you can get good chocolate anywhere in the world, but the one thing that's common throughout all these aspects is the passion behind it. So if you get to a chocolatier here in the United States or in London, you're going to get good chocolate if the person making it wants to make good chocolate.
0: You know, it's, it's interesting to me because I'm always going around Europe working on my guidebooks and certain places are famous for this or that special um, taste treat. And it's no secret how they make it, but I think what really might be what distinguishes them is how fresh they are and how much cultural importance is put on something. Only in Belgium have I picked up the notion that people want fresh chocolate. They'll buy it, like, on the way home from work, and it's today's chocolate.
1: It's this idea of respect. You got to respect the product, and if you're going to respect the product, you're going to make it fresh. You're going to make sure that you have the top-notch ingredients available to it.
0: Now in Belgium, they're they're doing all these gourmet chocolates. You've got the standard, you know, chocolates, and then you'll have. uh, There's a famous place in Bruges that has ginger chocolate, spicy chili, Pop Rocks, even fried onions. And you know, you think kind of, are they trying too hard here? What's your take on these uh, gourmet chocolates?
1: You know, I, I think one of the aspects of that is that chocolatiers have the best sense of humors and the best sense of fun when it comes to their product. They're always trying something new just because they can. I mean, they're Willy Wonka made real. Uh-huh. And so they get yeah. to play in that playground.
0: All right. Bill, thanks for your call. Well, I appreciate you taking my call. And have fun next time you go to Belgium with all that chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Kate Hopkins, and Kate's book is called Sweet Tooth, The Bittersweet History of Candy, and I'd say it's good reading, if you're he- especially if you're heading off to Europe and you want to understand a little bit of the, the back story of all the beautiful candy and sweets you're going to be encountering. Kate, in a Whitman sampler, what's your favorite chocolate?
1: Chocolate-covered cherries. It's the first thing I go for.
0: Do you have to nibble through the corner of six chocolates to find that, or do you know what it looks like?
1: I know what it looks like by heart.
0: And describe for me the moment overseas when candy made you the happiest.
1: Candy made me the happiest overseas because I was there with my friend, and we got to explore our, between the two of us, and we got to giggle at the right places. I know that sounds corny, but it's it's the shared experience that made me happiest.
0: And where was the shared experience the most giggly fun?
1: It was in uh, Palermo at the start of the trip. And Why? Where, well, yeah. because it was it was the excitement of searching and being part of the story. Sicily,
0: where you get this Moorish and African and Arabic and and Italian influence all coming together into a beautiful confection. Absolutely. Kate Hopkins, author of Sweet Tooth, The Bittersweet History of Candy. Thanks for uh, adding a lot of calories to many of our next <laughs> trip, okay? All Best right. wishes. Thanks. On the good trip,
4: lolly pop, it's a sweet trip to a candy
0: shop where bonbons play on the sunny beach of Peppermint Bay. Lemonade well, crack a deck, bend, the air, and there you are. Happy landing on a chocolate bar.
6: Boo! <laughs> Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks for studio help to WUNC in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, We get website support from Andrew Wakeling and tech support from Jonathan Lee. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Rick has recorded walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. You'll find a link to Rick's audio tours in the radio section of ricksteves.com.
0: Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, helping you learn a new language on your smartphone. Rosetta Stone uses images and games to teach instead of rote memorization. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.